The Books Podcast, presented by Tim Haig. This episode was recorded in front of a live audience at the Dublin Castle Pub in Camden. I ask you, gentlemen of the jury, is this the kind of book you'd like your wives and servants to read? Welcome to Books Podcast Live. I'm Tim Haig and I'm delighted to see you. Books Podcast has had many splendid authors and wonderful uh, books, and I hope that you'll uh, subscribe and listen to to hear them. Um, tonight, we're here at the Dublin Castle Pub in Camden for the live show, joined by Alwyn Turner to discuss his rather brilliant Little Englanders, Britain in the Edwardian Era. Alwyn is probably best known for his trilogy of books about Britain in the late 20th century, and he's also written excellent volumes on pop culture and social history, all of which are equally entertaining. We're happy to boast that he's an old friend of Books Podcast. Alwyn, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me again. From our perspective, uh, we tend to see the Edwardian era as a sort of uh, an interregnum, don't we, between the Victorians and the, uh, frankly, horrible uh, 20th century inaugurated by uh, the First World War. But presumably the Edwardians didn't see it that way. How did they feel about the passing of the old queen and the, the, the new century? They knew, they knew that it was different. They'd had a queen on the throne for so very long. There's hardly anybody left in the country who had been alive, let alone who could remember a time before Victoria. And she died in the first weeks of 1901, which was the start of the 20th century, as far as they were concerned, because they were much more literal and Christian about it than we were at the millennium. And so January 2001, start of the new century, and then the old queen dies. And because the 19th century had been so extraordinary, this, this amazing period of, 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 of revolution and... and Upheaval. Oh, and technological development yeah. as well. Uh, the, the, yeah, I mean, the, the, the impact of the Industrial Revolution has completely transformed the country, and it had been a very noisy century. And I think the, the, the sense that it had come to an end meant there was definitely the end of an era, a, a new century, a new king. Things will be different to be in fair, some way course. that they can't quite define. Edward VII died in 1910, uh, not 1914, so technically it should only have been a... a but we tend to think of those of, of that as that era. Well, otherwise we haven't got anything to call the next bit. It's one of the functions of having a monarch should be that they, they deal with the first 10 years of a century, you know, the Edwardian time. Otherwise you end up with the noughties, which was frankly rubbish. <laughs> you know? the, the Edwardian era definitely has a feel. And yeah, it, does, it, it has to continue, because it's not really shaped by Edward. I mean, well, I was going to ask that. How different was Edward? Did he put a stamp on the time at all? Well, he does in the sense that everybody is very well aware of him. I mean, he, he, he was the longest serving Prince of Wales we'd ever had at that stage. I mean, the current king exceeded that. But he'd been around for so long. He was so well known that he, he was broadly welcomed. People, people liked the idea of this, this um, slightly larger-than-life uh, man who was associated with champagne and chorus girls. It's, it seemed like a nice break from uh, the buttoned-up world of Victoria. We do find that there are a lot of sort of echoes. We're now in a time when we've, we've had a very long-lived queen and we've got a king now. I always think it's strange to have a king. It's like a children's picture book, isn't it? <laughs> the king is going to the toilet. It, it, it just doesn't sound right. But that, in the same way now, as it must have been for them, is because we had a queen for so very long 
that nobody knew what it was like to have a king. But so there, there's an echo there, and there are, we're going to come back to this as a, a regular theme in the next half hour because there are echoes of all sorts of things that, that you think, well, that could have been now. Mm -hmm. But before we do, you bookend the, uh, the, the narrative with uh, two deaths and two, uh, two killers. Mm -hmm. um, one of the deaths, obviously, Queen Victoria. The other one's Oscar Wilde. Why? What, what, how is he emblematic of, of that transition from Victorian to Edwardian? I think it's easy to forget just how big the Wilde scandal was and how much it completely transformed the country. I mean, this was, this was a man at the absolute peak of, of success, two plays running on, on the West End simultaneously, and is then brought low within a few months of those plays opening. And he, he represents a version of the 19th century that ended because his disgrace was so great that everybody turns their back on him and, 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 and on everything that he represents, the, the, the concept of art for art's sake and, and, and beauty. And this, this disappears very, very rapidly. And the, 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 the writers who are big at the time, who are taken seriously, tend to be much more functional and utilitarian. Well, you suggest in your book that the, um, the, one of the things that changes is, is, is the values somewhat change. Money becomes a much more important um, preoccupation uh, but but in, in the sense of being a sort of public preoccupation, they always wanted money. Everybody always wants money. But it somehow became a, a sort of a conscious thing, and, and in, in a way, an accepted thing to be avaricious, to be, uh, to be desirous of accumulating. Yeah, and you've got, the, you've got the rise of the city of London in a really big way. It, it becomes more important, the, the financial sector becomes more important than the industrial sector for the first time. People are investing in, at, at a level that they hadn't done before. It, it, yeah, it, it's a time when, again, I think because it's the end of the 19th century and there has been so much money generated, part of, the, part of this new era, they, people are aware at the beginning of it, is that this is going to be a time when you start to redistribute national income in a way that you haven't before. And it's, it's not simply the avaricious side of it is it's also this is the time when you you get the the creation of the welfare state you get the introduction of pensions and national insurance and the idea that all of that money that has been generated through industrialization and through urbanization that's got to start filtering down to people and there's a sense of, a new sense of democracy about the time you offer us a, a handful of vignettes of of individuals who are highly entertaining so i'm going to ask i'm just going to say the word Violet Charlesworth and invite you to tell us about her. She's fab. Violet Charlesworth was, uh, she, was uh, she was an heiress. She was just coming up to her 25th birthday and there was this terrible accident on the, uh, the, the coastal road in North Wales when her car hit the, uh, the sea wall and she was thrown out of it and into the, into the sea and her body was never recovered. And it was a great tragedy because she was just about to come into this, this big inheritance at the age of 25 from a long, de long dead uh, fiancé that had left her this money. Um, and it was, it was a great, great shame. And then it was discovered that actually it didn't quite add up. The car wasn't very damaged. The two people in the back of the car completely unhurt. There's a lack of blood. There's a lack of, lack of damage to the sea wall that she supposedly hit. And the water's very shallow there. The idea that she got, her body's not going to be... And then they discovered that actually she's... Uh, 
probably done a runner. I'm there shocked. is there is there is a, a, a story of, of of a woman wearing a scarlet cloak getting on a train just down the road later that night, and then it's one of the great tabloid stories of the time. Um, there, there are days and days of of searches for. Um, women in crimson cloaks wandering the country and she's eventually tracked down in Oban um, she, she's found in a small hotel up there and the whole thing was 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 a fraud um, she did she didn't have any inheritance at all she, <laughs> she had just been uh, she'd been allowing the story to circulate in order to get lines of credit and she owed tens of thousands of pounds to people because they'd all assumed that she's just about to come into some money on her 25th birthday and she's a con woman so um, she just fakes and she, her and own she gets, death. She gets nicked um, <clears throat> and fakes her death, gets caught, and while she's waiting to go to trial, uh, she appears on the musical stage because that's what people can do at this point. If you've got a, if you've got a story to tell, then you get get paid to it go was, and tell. I'm events. a celebrity. Get me out of here yeah, for the much, audience. Yeah. Yeah. She was a Another celebrity. Echo, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and the word celebrity is around at the time, and she is described as being a celebrity. She's, but she's famous for um, trying to defraud people. Huge numbers of people. I mean, you know, there's city brokers who are stung, which nobody cares much about, but also her landlady and, and the uh, the person who looks after her dogs um, is, has unpaid wages, and <laughs> it's, it's all it's all very sad. Um, and she goes to jail. I mean, she gets a, she gets a serious sentence. Somebody who doesn't go to jail, and we're we're going to spend a, a couple of minutes on him, Horatio Bottomley. Now we all know the name. You've all heard the name Horatio Bottomley. I know. Almost nothing about him until I read your book, and I'm ra I fell in love with him. He is fantastic. So, uh, quick, quick, praise of Horatio Bottomley, Horatio. your friend of mine. He would have he would have worked great in today's society. Mm -hmm. He was he was orphaned at the age of five, ran away from the orphanage at the age of fourteen, and sets himself up after a few years as a as a financier in the city of London. There's, this is the late nineteenth century. There's um, a big gold rush in Australia, and he sets up companies that have land where gold is just about to be discovered um, and just needs a bit more investment. Um, and then the gold is never discovered and it needs more money. And he just, he just raises vast amounts of money from people who are gullible and looking for a very, very big profit out of this stuff. And it's, it's, it's reckoned he, about three million quid made its way into his, his, three million his, his hands in, at in the time. time. Yeah. So, I mean, over the period of a decade, but you know, it's still he's substantial. And then it, then he he decides he's going to become an MP. So he stands for the uh, for the Liberal Party in Hackney South, um, where they love him because he's, <laughs> he's 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 this this East End kid who's, who's who's made it really big and loves the fact that he's made it big and he. Again, he, she shares the, uh, the, the the new king's taste for champagne and chorus girls and racehorses and loses vast amounts of money and sets up a, a newspaper that is deeply scurrilous um, and runs protection Didn't he buy rackets. the sun? <clears throat> he did. He had, a, he had a paper called The Sun. He yeah. also had a paper called The Financial Times, but, uh, <laughs> but not, not that sun and not that Financial Times. Um, and he, he, he gets to be a, a, an MP, which is marvellous. Um, except the Liberal Party don't really like him. And so they all... Cold. Also, he gets to be an MP by... What do you say? He, he embraces his uh, constituencies to the point of bribery. He, yeah, no, he, he spent a lot of money, gave away a lot of money to his constituents and, and achieved a massive swing. I mean, he took a Tory seat with a bigger swing than anybody else in London. So and, far, so far. Yeah, um, and he's... Uh, He's just a rogue. He's a fantastic rogue. Um, 
And in fact, he does go to jail, but after the court time of this book, it's not until the 1920s that it finally catches up with him and he, uh, he gets nicked. And then he's, but he's, he's, he's sort of, you say the word celebrity was around then. I mean, he is uh, admired for it. Uh, Violet uh, Charlesworth was largely, I mean, she went to prison as well, but these people were, were sort of, um, they, were, uh, they were made much of and uh, anybody could uh, go on the, uh, on, on the musical stage, as you say, if, if they were just famous for anything. In fact, we have to talk about the fat boy of Peckham. Mm. In fact, uh, do you have a reading? I think you have a reading. Would... No, you read the bit about the fat boy of Peckham. Would that be all we right? Can. Okay. Mm. Fat boy of Peckham is um, <coughs> marvellous because he, he would have been perfect in the, in the present day. Mm. The first report appeared in 1903. A boy from Peckham, South London, had just turned five years old and was growing at a remarkable rate. At nearly four feet tall, John, John Trundley already had a 42-inch waist and weighed 10 stone 4 pounds. His bulk meant that he was unable to walk far and was too heavy to be pushed in a pram, but apart from that, he was in good health and strong enough to lift his father off the ground. He was also, said his mother, an intelligent child. Johnny knows his alphabet, can add two and two, can say Little Jack Horner and Little Miss Muffet. By chance, the same month saw the publication in Pearson's magazine of the first instalment of H.G. Wells' new novel, the, F the Food of the Gods, which told of scientists developing boom food, a substance that accelerates animal growth. Wasps swell to the size of owls, earwigs to the size of lobsters, and when it's fed to infant humans, it produces giants. Oversized children were clearly newsworthy. And within weeks, John Trundley had been signed up by two music halls in South London at £10 a week each, followed by an offer from Edward Moss to appear at the Edinburgh Empire for £40 a week. These were riches too great to be resisted by Trundley's father, a dustman who suffered badly from rheumatism. By the end of the year, the fat boy of Peckham, as he was billed, was earning the family's living on stage. It wasn't much of an act, for Trundley had no talents beyond his size. So he came on in a sailor suit and stood in the middle of the stage holding his father's hand while a lecturer hired for the occasion displayed an enlarged copy of his birth certificate and expounded upon his vital statistics. After a couple of minutes, the sailor suit was removed to reveal a close-fitting pink body stocking. He was asked his name, Sonny Jim, and what he wanted to be when he grew up, a policeman. And that was all there was. It was sufficient. His appearance provoked great laughter, and it was reported he brought in the crowds, especially ladies. <laughs> How the fat boy felt about these proceedings was unclear. Johnny showed no symptoms of mirth, noted the papers. He simply gazed at the footlights as if not quite comprehending their use. He was no simpleton, though. There was also the story of a medical examination, during which, evidently bored, he failed to respond to questions. That boy is mentally deficient the doctor said, and received a sharp retort, got more brains than you. But on stage, confronted by a chortling crowd, he simply froze. The press made great play of the fat boy's career, while simultaneously professing themselves outraged. The mere, spectacle, the mere exhibition of monstrosity is degrading to the spectators and doubly degrading to the unfortunate object of their so-called amusement, fumed the Daily Mirror. He had been trained to exhibit his fat as the beggars of old exhibited their deformities, trained to appeal to some low instinct of curiosity, which it is difficult for cultured people to understand. 
So great was the outcry that a prosecution was brought against the proprietors of the halls and against Trundley's father under the Prevention of Cruelty to Children Act. The case collapsed, however, when the magistrate ruled that the law did not apply. The Act provides that no child under the age of 11 years, unless licensed, should appear upon a stage for the purpose of singing, playing or performing for profit, he ruled. In this case, the child was not on the stage for the purpose of singing or playing or performing for profit, but was there as a freak of nature and nothing else. It wasn't exactly a ringing endorsement of the morality of the musicals, but it did declare open season in the search for other outsized children. Charles Watts of Woodchurch, Kent, 12 years old and 19 stone in weight, was offered the opportunity to be similarly exhibited, but his parents declined the offer. So too the parents of newspaper discoveries Harold Bishop of Birmingham, 10 stone 7 pounds at the age of 12, and 9-year-old Elizabeth Daltrey, weighing in at 8 stone 6 pounds. But there were bookings for 15-year-old Miss Lucy, the Russian fat child, who was claimed to top them all at 25 stone. Miss Lucy, who appears as a ballet dancer, is as graceful as a fairy, read the reports. <laughs> Meanwhile, the fat boy of Peckham was discovering a hard truth of modern celebrity, that the only thing worse than being forgotten about is not being forgotten about. When it came time for John Trundley to go to school, there was much excitement that a special chair and desk had to be constructed to accommodate him. More sensational still, a tram line had to be extended by 400 yards because he couldn't walk to the nearest stop. The Daily Mail led the thunderous attack on this waste of council money. And from being a figure of fun, Trundley found himself recast as a burden on the public purse. Didn't end his career, though, and he continued to be exhibited by his father into his teenage years. He also came to symbolise the depths of tr journalistic triviality. In 1905, the Socialist Labour Party mocked the likes of Henry Hindman and Keir Hardy, leaders of the Social Democratic Federation and Labour Party, respectively, for chasing publicity and seeking to get into the papers, along with a fat boy of Peckham. See, <laughs> thank you. See, we look back from from uh, this vantage point and think, you know, putting somebody on the stage who had no talent, nothing to offer at all, and then you think, I don't know, Stacey Solomon. You know, Jade Goody. We, we mm -hmm. still do it. It's, it's and, and, nothing and, has changed. And the newspaper response is exactly the same as well. You make as much of it as possible, and then decide to switch and decide that this is this is now somebody to be despised and hated. Is this in any way the the golden age of musical? Because we you tend to think of musical as very much of a, a Victorian thing. Is is it still going uh, gangbusters? in the Edwardian time. It's, it's bigger, it's, it, it, it's, it's got much more serious about it. It's not as much fun, I don't think, but I mean, we, the problem is we have no, uh, no recordings, no visuals of, of, of the, the Victorian musical. We have some of the Edwardian period, but it, it's, it's calmed down a lot. At, at its peak in the mid-Victorian times, the, the musical was just this incredibly rowdy, rough place where, I mean, this is, this is entertainment that grew out of pubs. People are People have gone along to these places to drink and to smoke and to socialise and then there's some entertainment on stage. And they are almost entirely drunk, the audiences, and if they don't like the people on stage, they will make it very clear that they don't like you and they will throw things at you. And the, 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 the rougher music halls have a, a grill, a metal grill over the, uh, the orchestra pit so that if you are throwing missiles, at least the, the innocent musicians shouldn't be hurt in the process. And the really dodgy ones had balconies that overhung the stage. And if they really didn't like you, then uh, 
people would go to the end of the balconies and urinate their displeasure from a great height. The, these were really rough places. And, and the big ones, I mean, there's, there's two, 3,000 people in these halls. You're doing it, obviously, without any amplification. Um, and it's getting a bit more singing. respectable, though, yeah, in the but, Edwardian Yeah, and, and by the Edwardian times, that's calmed down a bit. I mean, they're still drinking heavily, but they're becoming much more like theatres. And, and there is a new wave of, of musicals that are structured like theatres rather than like pubs. And, and the, the big chains start to come in. You get, you get the arrival of big business. Rather than independent musicals, one-offs, you get chains of them with, with dozens of horns owned by the same people. And then the management has real serious control over the, yeah. the, the, the artists that they're prepared to book. And there is a fear that this is driving out new talent because they're just sticking with the old crowd pleasers and, and the thing is becoming a bit s static. I mean, it, it, it's still producing great people. I mean, there, well, there I was going to say, you know, who are the big there. names? Who are the ones we're going to remember? Dan Leno, presumably. Dan, Dan, Mary Lloyd. Dan, Dan Leno, who invents stand-up comedy, effectively. Mary Lloyd, who is uh, the, the closest that Britain ever had to Marilyn Monroe. I mean, just the, the extraordinary performer um, who's at her peak in this time and is not respectable, stays away from the respectability very heavily. Yeah, she, um, was, she was a powerful personality, wasn't she? Yeah, I mean, she's, she's great. She's much loved by a working-class audience because she is working-class and she doesn't change that, despite the fact that she's earning vast amounts of money. She's giving most of it away. Um, she dies not quite bankrupt, but not far off. Um, and she... She retains the spirit of the old musical at a time when it becomes respectable. When they have the, the first um, command performance, royal command performance, the forerunner of the, the Royal Variety Show, which inexplicably still exists, um, <laughs> Mari Lloyd is not invited to appear because she will upset the Queen. Um, she, she's, she's too naughty. Yeah, but quite a lot of things made, made them blush, didn't they? I mean, you, your, your rough audience wanted things quite quite excessive but uh, the polite society really really could could be uh, could be get the vapors on the slightest mm. excuse and and that's that's ultimately where musical starts to compromise its original spirit and it, as I say, it loses some of that early energy and the, the the sheer raucousness of the place but but there but are this, people holding on to it this is also the time that uh, cinema is is beginning what what impact did that have very popular. I mean, it, it's really difficult because virtually no films, uh, uh, British films, have survived from this time. And there's, there's, there's a few, a few bits, but very little. And so a lot of that is is trying to, it's going through the the, the, the newspapers of the time, the, the trade papers like Kinematograph Weekly, where they give you a synopsis of the the plots of films that have long since been lost. And, and some of them, you just think it's a shame. There's there's a spate of films about anarchists. Anarchists are very fashionable <laughs> for a short period. And, and the film, The Anarchist's Mother-in-Law, just strikes me as... <laughs> as you want to see that one. As, you as, do, you as do. As perfect a British response to politics as you can imagine somehow. Um, he, he blows her up, spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> but he, he blows up his mother-in-law with a bomb. Um, when it's a sort of on. Wild West, you'd expect it to be pretty racy as well. But they, they, they opted for um, censorship uh, mm -hmm. voluntarily at the, at the very outset. How did that happen? Uh, it, they they got nervous that um, local councils had the right to uh, to license cinemas, and some councils started saying, "Well, if you show immoral films, we won't give you a license." And this this is going to completely ruin distribution if 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 you have hundreds of councils, all of them deciding for themselves, 
And so the film industry decides it ought to invent its own censorship body. At precisely the moment that there is a parliamentary inquiry into whether theatre censorship should be abolished, the cinema decides to adopt exactly the same model as the, the theatre and indeed recruit people from the Lord Chamberlain's office who were responsible for censoring the, the, uh, the theatre to get them into doing the, the, the same to the cinema. Probably a mistake because the Lord Chamberlain was still vetting scripts until, was it the 60s, 68, I think. Was yeah. it 68, yeah. Um, um, but it, it's, it was, um, I mean, they start off, the, the censors say there are only two rules. There is uh, no, no nudity on screen and no depiction of Jesus. Um, which kind of ruined the nude Christ project, but uh, <laughs> it was. And then they then they very rapidly add a whole load of other rules as they go along, and, and it kind of builds very quickly into all the things that you're not allowed to do. You say you said earlier on it was it's a quite a, a it was a, a, a good time for serious art in in Britain, I, but I, I want I wonder if it, there was an element of insularity you also cite you know things that were going on 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 the continent you've got schoenberg in music we never showed we had elgar um you, you've got picasso and brach you know, painting uh, we had nothing like and you've got freud and einstein um how how far is it fair to accuse britain of insularity oh entirely it was it was it was very deliberately trying to distance itself and, and feeling that it's in a position to do so. I mean, the, the, the empire is, is vast. We, we don't have to take a lead from France. Um, and <laughs> well, it was an, an interesting attitude to foreigners in general, wasn't it? Yeah, there? but, but the, the, well, the French have always been um, suspect in British culture. Germany is becoming so because, because the German economy is just starting to overtake the British economy. It is seen as a major rival. A deep hatred of Russia um, and for being medieval and, and, and primitive and yeah i mean they're, they're, oh, and, but, 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 but oriental yeah but, but most sinister but mostly they're just all foreign is, yeah. is, is the point i mean there's, there's um when when lenin came and, and lived in london for a year or so his, his his wife wrote a book um later about their time in london he said the whole time they lived here the landlady was convinced they were german and they did nothing to disabuse her because i mean you're, you're trying to hide from the russian secret police it's not a bad idea if people don't know who you are but it's just that assumption that Germans, Russians, they're all much the same anyway, aren't they? I was ravished by a passage you've got about the, the fifth Russian, I forget, I'm going to forget what it was called, the Russian uh, Congress mm. in, what was it, 1908 or something? You've got Lenin and Stalin and all of those guys mm. in a church in Hackney or somewhere. Um, which, it's, it's like something out of a, a, a John Buchan novel or, or uh, something like that. How did that possibly come about, that <laughs> the revolutionaries are all huddled in a church um, having their meeting, the Fifth it's, Congress? It's because nobody else would have them. I mean, obviously they can't... You be, mean in, they, in Europe? Yeah. They, obviously you can't meet in Russia, I mean, but they were supposed to be meeting in, in Copenhagen and, and the the Danish authorities refused them permission, or, or rather said that if they did, then they'd arrest them and hand them over to the Russians. They got rejected by Norway. They got rejected by everywhere apart from Britain, which was Britain always... Britain was so liberal uh, and yeah. easygoing. Uh, yeah, it's always been perfectly open to, uh, to people to come and be dissidents. And, and, and it's where Karl Marx wrote his great works. It's, 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 there's a tradition there. But it is, it is odd that it's this obscure little congregationalist uh, church in Hackney with... Um, Russian revolutionaries 
uh, sidling in with with newspapers hiding their face so they don't get photographed and and, and the, even the, then the, they're, the they're coming in in the morning this, aren't they to yeah. to avoid being yeah, they, clocked well, by the police apart from sundays where they have to do it overnight because they have to get out in time for divine service on, on the sunday morning fair but, enough yeah um but it's the this is a big moment. This is, this is Lenin and Trotsky as, as the heads of the Bolshevik and the Menshevik factions deciding who's going to control this and, and what the future is going to be for the, uh, for the party. Um, and they're doing it in, in Hackney. But at the same the you time, would. you've got all these, these novels and films, all this um, uh, anarchist... Uh, panic, you know, than the notion that uh, the, the country's going to be overtaken with with men with those round bombs and a, and mm -hmm. a fuse on the top that we that from from the cartoons. You've got your 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 Sax Roma's Fu Manchu sinister Chinaman and uh, <laughs> mixed up with Japanese because they we, we really didn't know the difference. So, it's a, the same as the Russians and the Germans. You can't yeah. tell the difference in the Chinese. And the so Japanese. The, the, there's a, a, a strong um, apprehension of your foreigner at the same time that we're allowing uh, crazy revolutionaries who are indeed going to convulse the world. Yeah, I don't think anybody expected this to happen. <laughs> it, was, it was assumed that this is just a, a weird little sect that really don't mean anything. But, uh, um, a political Salvation Army. Or yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so yes, it's, 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 it's just a very odd little episode where, as you say, the streets of, of, of East London are awash with, with Russian revolutionaries. There was a political convulsion in the middle of this period, in 1906, when the Liberals won a landslide. Um, mm. And why did that happen? The, the Tories had been, had been so dominant. Um, why did it happen? And then what were the consequences? What did that mean to the country? I mean, it's, it's difficult to put yourself back in these times. You've got a, a, a Conservative government that's been in office for too long and has run out of ideas and run out of the will to govern and is, is, is tearing itself apart over, in, in splits over how you approach world trade. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a very different time. And they go down to this <laughs> humiliating landslide victory to, of, of the Liberal Party in, in 1906, which is, is, is genuinely significant in a way that changes of government often aren't. Um, but that Liberal government that comes in, which is um, led by Campbell Bannerman and then by Asquith, and has Lloyd George as one of the main uh, driving forces. This, this is the, the, the party that invents the welfare state. People have been talking about introducing pensions for years and years, and finally this is the, part, this is the government that does it. And they introduce national insurance. And all of that is trying to catch up with Germany again. I mean, Germany is looming very large at this point. It, it has a benefit system that is way in advance of anybody else. And, and Britain is trying to keep up with this and knowing that something has to happen. Was there a sense of, of, of doom, overhanging doom? Did, uh, did, did the British expect to be fighting Germany in the foreseeable future? Uh, yes. Um, I, I, the, there's a vast amount of, of invasion novels that are published around this time, with, with, and it, it tends to focus on, we are going to war with Germany. And the newspapers keep on talking about the possibility that, the, that a war is going to come. There is a, a, an absolute assumption that Britain will beat Germany in, in, in a war, but, but there, there is still this, this sense that it's going to happen, yeah. And it's, it's, it's mostly seen in the fiction, I think. The stuff that is really popular is, is pushing this, this, this message that it's, it's, this society is not quite as stable 
and the country is not quite as secure as it might be. Not as secure, but is it possible to make a guess at how, how the nation would have gone on if, if the Great War had been, had been able to be avoided? I mean, can we, can we sort of see that, that golden summer of Edwardianism uh, pressing on? Or did something need to come in to, to, to smash it to pieces? It would have gone very badly wrong had the war not broken out. Because the, the other thing that is building in those last few years before the war is the, the potential for a civil war in Ireland. Um, the, at this stage, the, the, the issue is, is home rule, which is a, a kind of de, a devolution. Um, it's not independence. But even that is sufficient to scare um, the Protestant population in the north. They do not wish to be ruled by a Catholic government in, in, in Dublin. And they start arming themselves. I mean, they, they, the, the Ulster Volunteer Force is formed, and there are, it, it, it rapidly acquires around 100,000 men who are ready to fight, and to fight, essentially, the British government. That's a serious army. Yeah, and, 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 and then a, a rival faction starts, who start uh, importing weapons as, as well. And it, we are clearly headed towards a civil war here, because the, the Ulsters forces are not going to accept any form of home rule at all and the home rule bill takes years to get through parliament but it is finally passed within a couple of days of the first world war breaking out and it is then put on hold it's not going to be implemented in, you know, because we are poor. but if the war hadn't broken out that home rule would have there would have been an attempt to implement it with two massive armed forces prepared to fight, and the British army not prepared to fight. The, the, the officer class of the British army had sympathies with the Ulstermen. They were not going to get involved in this, um, and they had made it very clear that they, well, they, they weren't going to fight. Serious crisis, then, if, yeah. if, 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 if your army no, won't no, I mean, a, a, a serious civil war, it, it would have been much worse than the the reality that happens after the first world war with the you know the, the war of independence and then the civil war that follows that it would have been on a much much bigger scale than that can i ask you what do you admire about the edwardian era i mean what 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 would you bring back if 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 uh, if you were allowed to wave a magic wand wand what, what what's the uh, what's the most desirable the most exciting aspects of it the the, the stuff that i really liked which before I started doing this, one of the reasons I was interested in the period is it has uh, the musical, which I love, um, and it has the best fiction of the time. I mean, the, 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 sorry, the fiction of the time is the best I know. It's, it's, it's Arthur Conan Doyle and John Buck, and these people I love. Um, and it's a time when writers are doing perfectly intelligent work expecting a mass audience. It's before... A, the, the, the kind of separation that modernism brings, where, where there is now going to be a high culture that, that, that is inaccessible Literary to people. Literary fiction yeah. and genre. Yeah, and, yeah, and at, this, at, this, at this stage, you've still got H.G. Wells writing very intelligent novels and expecting to get massive readership as a result. And that seems to be a good time. You cover an amazing variety of, uh, of, of these fascinating vignettes in the book, um, and I found it completely uh, completely entertaining so thank you very much 
Thank you. Uh, that's uh, Alwyn Turner, Little Englanders, uh, Britain in the Edwardian era, uh, from Profile Books. It's £25. And um, please do subscribe now to Books Podcast uh, on your favourite player to hear this and all the other interviews we've got. Alwyn Turner, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. That was the Books Podcast, presented by Tim Haig. Email Tim on tim at bookspodcast.com, Twitter at bookspodcast, and Facebook at bookspodcasttim. If anybody has any questions, if anybody, you know, if there's anybody who hasn't learned everything there is to know, um, please let us know. We're going to turn the light on so we can see you. Yes. We know that there was huge social change after the First World War with big changes to the class system. Were the seeds for that already in place during the Edwardian time? Yeah, very much so. They, they are aware, as I said, that when people are looking at the beginning of the, the 20th century with the death of Victoria particularly, people are saying this, is, this has got to be a different world now. This has got to be a world where the working class are given more time. I mean, the, the, the pressure for expanding the, uh, the franchise to, to allow working-class voters is, is very much part of this, this time. It doesn't happen until after the First World War. It's another thing that gets interrupted by it, but it would have, it would have been quicker. Um, and it is... Yes, yeah, it's, it's a time when people are becoming aware. And the, the Daily Mail revolutionises the concept of newspapers. I mean, the Daily Mail, founded in the 1890s, very rapidly becomes the first paper with a million circulation. And it starts the idea that newspapers should be reflecting their readership and expressing their opinions in order to put pressure on those in power, rather than the old top-down model of the Times and the Telegraph, which was about telling their readers what had been happening in Parliament. I mean, the Daily Mail does not have room for 8,000-word reports from yesterday in Parliament or what the, the great and the good are doing. There's more interest in ordinary people. That, that refocus is, is quite a big deal. And even with the politicians, I mean, um, Lloyd George, most obviously, as this person who comes from nowhere and becomes Chancellor of the Exchequer, and the most important Chancellor of the Exchequer in British history. But even Asquith is, is talked about at the time. As he's the first Prime Minister who doesn't have a country house. I mean, this is, this is a, a weird world of democracy we now have, where even people without a country house can get to be Prime Minister. Because, of course, it's, it's they exciting. weren't paid. MPs weren't paid in those days. Uh, comes in about 1911, I think. They, they, they first get paid, yeah. Um, under pressure from the, the Labour Party, which is still small at this point, but is, is growing. And the, the existence of the Labour Party does make a huge difference as well, because it puts pressure on the, the Liberals to move further to the left in order to cover that flank. Hi. You've, I've read and been through your series of books to this point. Um, what's the next one? How, how do we get from the Edwardians, I'm kind of hoping we bypass the First World War, because I hear it too often, what happens next? Uh, the, the, the next book is Britain Between the Wars. Yes. Shell-shocked, Britain Between the Wars. I've written all the important bits of it already. Jeff the Talking Mongoose from the, the Isle of Man is already, is already written up. Um, the, the, the important things uh, are dealt with. The... F the, 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 the great spate of sightings of the Loch Ness Monster, this, this, this is, you know, the exciting times between the wars. Thank you very much for coming.
Thank you, Alan.